Okay, so my fun topic, surprise, surprise, given all that's going on, is on Jesus, clearly. Confrontation. Yeah. I'm like, really? Does it have to be about spiritual warfare? God's like, yeah. And then consolation. I had to kind of look that up. Um, I was a little nervous because we are following Alexander Fenter's stuff. Like in my eyes, Alexander's like 40 years I can only learn from this man, and now I've got to preach his stuff. So, Alexander, hi. You don't need to listen to this. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I don't even have any jokes. I don't remember jokes. Okay, here's a joke. So, what happened to a lady who thought that two hands, two kids, and then God gave her four kids and a church? I'm the joke. No, the joke's on me. <laughs> I really thought I had it all when I had Jordan and Jenna. My life was sorted. Somebody had asked, who would want to have, like, their dreams and desires to have two kids, a pool, a house, sitting, yeah, sitting next to the pool drinking a milkshake? And I was like, me? <laughs> it's kind of the extent of my, um, what I thought would be a valuable life, and God went, oh, Louise, you made for so much more than that, and I was like, oh, okay, all right, well, we're just going to have to wing it today, no, okay, turn to Mark 1, unfortunately, you won't be able to read it, but <clears throat> sorry about that, I'll post it up, the slide, no. I put it on there, but I, anyway, it's fine, okay, I'm going to read from the Passion Translation, um, I love the book of Mark. So Mark is an amazing book. It was one of the first Gospels written. And he is punchy, short, to the, sweet, and to the point, And his language is quite um, brutal, as Alexander Fenter would say. So in Mark 1, um, this is when Jesus was baptized. The moment Jesus rose up out of the water, John saw the heavenly realm split open, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him. And at the same time, a voice spoke from heaven saying, You are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you. Oh, what a moment. So we must remember, the context to this is, remember Jesus, like Alexander said, he was this mumsier, this bastard child. No one knew his father. I mean, you kind of could pretend that Joseph was his real dad, and jo Joseph parented him like a dad on earth. But he had no father. So, as Alexander said, he grew up having to continually go back to his mom, his earthly parents, and say, Mom, just tell me that story again about my birth. Tell me again about how I was born. Tell me again. Remind me again. After he was probably bullied and, and all that stuff. What was amazing about that moment is now suddenly Jesus has this public confirmation. John is his cousin. I'm sure when they were kids, John probably teased him as well. Dude, you don't even know who your dad is. Who's your daddy? And um, now suddenly, John has a glimpse of who Jesus is. And John is baptizing Jesus. In fact, in some of the other translations, John goes, I, I don't want to be the one to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And... Um, now he gets this public affirmation. A voice shouts from heaven. This is my son. This is my boy. And I delight in him. He's in fact my greatest delight. I cherish this man. The people around, it says in some of the translations that it might have been even so much so that even though John had the experience of seeing a heavenly or a spiritual realm rip open, there was something happening in the physical as well, because some people experience light, if you read about it, and some people were actually afraid, like, what's going on here? So there was definitely a physical manifestation of this spiritual event. Now, in the Levitical priests, at the age of 30, which Jesus was then, they were ordained and set apart at the age of 30 to become priests. Jesus knew the significance of this moment. John knew the significance of this moment. And the people around may not have been able to put it into words as such, but they also sense the significance of this moment. 
an incredible revelation from heaven drops the, the skies tear open. And he gets to hear his dad's voice. Incredible. Have we all had that? We've all had these in massive revelations of God, the massive experiences with God. And then the fun part, which is what I'm going to be preaching on today. So we all long for confirmation of our calling, our destiny, our identity. We all long for that. That's something that's built in in us. So when it happens, it's incredible. And some people have had this. Some people have had the most amazing experiences with God. Some people still long for it. And I wonder what Jesus must have been thinking at that time. What, he, what was he experiencing as a man? You know, we need to redeem our imaginations back for the kingdom of God. It's okay to read the word and try and imagine yourself and how you would respond at that moment. Imagine what it would have felt like. Imagine how Jesus must have reacted and thought and what the people around were thinking. The Bible can be quite um, like vague in some ways, you know, and I'll go on on about it, but use, ask Holy Spirit to help you open up your imagination and to imagine what would have been like in that time. So this would have been the time when I went, slide, but no. Hey? Oh, it's, apparently it's coming. Oh, Lee, you're amazing. I always save it as a PDF. Okay. So, if you read on in John, the next verse, it says, immediately, now, John, uh, Mark's, sorry, Mark's language is very intense. I think he must have been like a choleric in his personality. Everything was immediately. Apparently, he used the word like 30 times in his very short book. And he was like, come, guys, let's do this. There was a sense of urgency written in, in his, in his um, book. Uh, Matthew and Luke took a lot of their stuff from Mark because it was written first. Um, you can see a lot of things, and then they added their own flavor to how it, you know, what they experienced, how it worked. So immediately Jesus is now compelled by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness. Think about that. Okay, so there's the confirmation. Yeah. Immediately the Holy Spirit from within drove him out into the wilderness. So much fun, hey? It's like, yay, this is my happy place. No. He stayed in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted all the while by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him continually. What? I was like, no, this doesn't make any sense. How do you have an incredible moment of public confirmation, of confirmation of who you are, your identity, and then immediately the Holy Spirit drives you into the wilderness? For 40 days, no less, with no food. No, no lunchbox, off you go. It wasn't even like, listen, go via the shops, wait a few hours. <laughs> go to Woolies, get some food for the road. Nope, go, now. And that word, drove him out, is the same word that they use in the New Testament for when we cast out demons. Isn't this fun? So... I'm not even going to try to pronounce the word, but trust me. It implies that Jesus was pushed, he was forced, he was expelled, he was cast into the wilderness. He was driven there. This was now a compelling of the Holy Spirit to put Jesus in a place of solitude, because remember the wilderness is always a place of solitude, where now he is now in the, confronted with the forces of evil. Because it says, all the while, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. Okay, guys, this is not animals. So if you read Psalm 22, it's Hebraic language for demons. Read Psalm 22 in the Passion Translation. Go and do yourself a favor, and you'll have an understanding of the demonic oppression that Jesus had while on the cross. Okay, so if you guys are feeling like you are lonely, you're in the wilderness, you're feeling alone, and you feel like oppressed, like 
everything of hell is coming at you. Jesus knows exactly how you're feeling. I'm going to get to a good part. Don't worry, I won't leave you guys here. So one of the reasons why after, you see, this is quite a common thing, actually, with prophets in the Old Testament. So they have an amazing revelation and experience of God, and then they go out into the wilderness. It's not actually an uncommon thing. We in um, the modern world probably do think it's not so, like, this is not a great idea. God, what are you thinking? But let's move on to actually figuring out why God does this. One of the reasons why God sends people into the desert is, is to be able to settle. So that truth that you've just received, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this. God gives you an amazing truth. And you're like, oh my word, I've never seen that before. That is incredible. This is amazing. And then from that point onwards, things get worse. Is anybody, am I the only person? Okay. And the reason why God drives us via Holy Spirit into the wilderness is because he wants to, so Jesus went, in some of the translations it says in Matthew and in Luke, it says one of the reasons why he went was to fast and to pray. Obviously he was fasting, he didn't have woolwurst. No, I'm, I'm teasing. It was to deepen and settle and solidify that truth in him. And he couldn't do that. He had to do it in solitude. He had to do it in wilderness. Now, the ancient worldview of wilderness is slightly different to ours. So my kind of understanding of wilderness is painful. If you can go to the next slide, please. So, okay, so the confrontation. So the act of confrontation or the state of being confronted is a face-to-face meeting. I mean, who wants to go into the wilderness and face Satan? The clashing of forces or ideas. And it's a battle or conflict. So Jesus was driven into the wilderness to come face-to-face with his enemy because of the clashing of two kingdoms, of two different ideas, two different forces. And this is, we're in a warfare, people. So the ancient mindset, the next slide, of the wilderness, the Hebrew words for wilderness, it comes from two root words. So devar and midbar, I don't know how to pronounce it, I can't speak Hebrew. So the first one is to speak, but it also means to bring order or arrange, all right? This is the wilderness we're speaking of. The second, the, the second root word is a place that exists in perfect balanced harmony or like a perfect ecosystem that has harmony and balance in it. So the ancient view of the wilderness is a place of harmony and balance and perfection in many ways, whereas they see cities as a place of chaos. It's a little bit upside down from what we understand, I think. Like in my Western mindset, I think the cities are a place of order. I mean, we have streets and roads and there's laws and everything. Everybody should abide. But actually, the ancients viewed the cities as a place of chaos. And the wilderness is a place to escape to, to find your harmony, your peace, and your order. Very different. And I felt God saying that he takes us into the wilderness because he's spoken his truth over us. But now he wants to bring order to our souls, to arrange balance and harmony with that truth. And that truth needs to take root in our minds and our hearts so that our inner ecosystem, our hearts and our souls, will be in harmony and balance with that truth. You see, we as believers in the church believe that if we just behave well enough and we perform enough and we are the good Christians, then we won't have conflict. You know, come to Jesus and life will be fine. He will rescue you and life will be just like on your father's yacht. Is that not true? We all have this underlying mindset and we feel a little confused when it's really not like that. Can believers at the same time be diligently following Jesus and then also be driven by Holy Spirit into a wilderness experience? Yes, of course. You you speak to anyone and that's exactly what 
most people's experience is. So the Holy Spirit, in Matthew and Luke, it's a little bit less of a um, strong language, leads Jesus into the lonely wilderness in order to reveal his strength against the accuser by going through the ordeal of testing. Guess what, guys? Testings and trials come from God. He actually leads us to those places. And it's not to prove us wrong. It's to prove the strength that he has placed in us to come out. So God did the same with the Israelites. I remember reading that he said to the Israelites, I'm not going to take you around the shortest route possible. I need to take you a little bit longer route because we need to get Egypt out of your heads, your way of thinking, that slavery mindset. We need to get that out of your heads. So I need to take you into a place of solitude so you and I can come into an understanding of what my truth is. They didn't really come to the party there. So we... so. Testing is to reveal what we believe, what's in our hearts, what's in our minds, and whether we will actually keep God's commandments or not. It's to really reveal what we believe about who God is, what his character is, and what actually he says about us is true. Do we actually believe that we are sons and daughters of the king, and what does that mean? And it also says that confrontation, now we have to go to, if you can go to the next slide. Even though testing is from God, he will never tempt us to sin, and he will never tempt us to do evil. So even though God confronts us through testing, it's never to get us to to sin. It's actually more to prove his truth in us and what is in us. And it's to reveal. So James 1 says, testing will stir up power from within so that you can endure all things. It's actually to produce maturity in us so we can endure The second part of testing is so that we learn to overcome our accuser. Satan means the accuser. He's our adversary. And he's the slanderer. Do you know that he's called the father of lies? So what what happens is that we, we forget that we're in this spiritual war. And we forget about the truth of who we are and the truth of who God is. And then Satan comes along and he likes to... Because his only true power is in the power of the lie. And if he can get you to agree with his lie, the power of agreement, he has power over you. The wilderness is to now uncover that lie and you to detach from that lie so that you have power from within now. So he is always out to destroy us. He's always out to destroy your faith. He may not be the source of our temptation because James 1 says the source of our temptation is in our hearts and our minds. So what we believe. But he can play on that. You see, when we have desires that are not godly, desires that James 1 calls evil desires, that isn't for, for God, then the enemy's got power over that. So quiet. Let's go to Jesus. So his temptations, all about his identity and his mission. So he's been confirmed. This is my son, my beloved son, who am I delight and I cherish you. And his first temptation is about who he is, his identity. So if you can go to the next side. 
All right. Next one. Okay. So the questioning behind every temptation of the three temptations that Jesus faced is the same as in Eden, and it's the same for us. It's questioning, actually, the character of God. Did God really say, and is he who he says he is, based on his character? And the amazing thing is Jesus, so we, we've got Jesus who, he's been called second Adam, right? He's now undid, undone what Adam has done. But also Jesus, what he did was he embodied and reinterpreted the failure of Israel, what they should have been and how they could have responded. He was in the desert 40 days. They were in the desert 40 years. They were only supposed to be in the desert for 11 days. It was an 11-day journey. They made it 40 years. In Exodus 4, God actually calls Israel, my son, through Moses, he says, let my son go so that he may serve me. They were supposed to go into the wilderness to serve God, to worship him. Boy, did they mess that up. So Jesus is the coming out of Egypt. He's how to come out of our idolatry, our slavery, our orphan mindsets. He's set the bar. He's, he's given us a model, an example of, guys, this is how you do it now. And all of that, all of how he did it was through obedience. Let's go to the slide, the first temptation. So what, where Israel failed in their obedience, Jesus obeyed. Where Israel failed to trust, Jesus trusted. So just remember that. So the first temptation. Now you can read the three accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't talk about this and, go, and I encourage you, go and read it. Go read all three different things and see all from the different angles of what happens. So Satan, after 40 days, okay, the poor guy hasn't eaten. He did drink because your body can't survive without water. 40 days of no food. I kind of think he was, you know, <laughs> the Bible says this is where we think, you know, the Bible kind of underestimates something. And when Jesus was really hungry... I think he was more at the point of starvation. He was at the point of physical starvation. There's very few people in this room who've experienced that, unless you've done a fast like this. So he says, if you are the son of God, why don't you turn these rocks into bread? Okay, so I might hallucinate and think that that rock is a piece of bread and eat it. But now he was enticing Jesus to use his power as the son of God to meet his own personal need. Why don't you prove, if you are the Son of God, why don't you prove your identity through a show of being, why don't you just be the Son of God? Do it your way. In order to meet your needs, because you are the Son of God, why don't you just do it your way? Your timing. Why don't you prove who you are to me? Because, of course, you've got this pressing personal need, and it must be net, because... Actually, the point of this, the base of this is, does God really love you? Why would he send you into the wilderness? Why would he make you fast for 40 days if he was your dad who loved you? It's the temptation to be independent of God. It's the temptation, well, you're not really a son. You haven't really been adopted into the family of God. You're still an orphan. So let's be independent. Let's make our own plan. And it reveals our relationship to material things. So would God really provide for you? And we're tempted not to trust fully in his love for you. Therefore, he won't care for you and provide for you. And it's this Greek, this world mind view that we have now is that the individual is the most important thing. What I think, what I feel, who I am is the most important. The individualistic mind view of the world that we have today. Me, myself, and I, I am the most important thing. And you see, we have to learn how to trust God beyond a mental knowledge 
of who he is. And it's the idolatry of Western world that he faces. So Jesus' answer, if you go to the next slide, his answer. So all of his quotations come from Deuteronomy. So the devil even knows, Jesus knows what's happening. He knows what he's reinterpreting to the to not only for himself, but to the spiritual realm. He knows, that's why he's quoting from Deuteronomy. He says, but human beings do not live by bread alone. My body sometimes doesn't believe that. But by man will live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So in other words, the basis of my needs is met because of what God says. He refused to use his newfound identity to prove himself to Satan or to anyone else. His trust was in that God would provide for him. Provide physically, spiritually, emotionally, and that he could live out of that place of provision. Part of this temptation of where we learn to overcome is to help us to become indifferent to our material needs. Scary, I think. This is one of the harder ones in our Western world where everything's about buy, 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 come more. You haven't got enough. And it's actually, it brings us back to the discipline of simplicity in our living. And actually, we have to detach. So when we start saying, God is our provider, We have to detach ourselves from the materialistic things that we place our source in rather than who God is and what he says and that actually his words that have substance, that create life in us, are more important than the things around us. Then we can start to say, I I am not what I have but I am because I'm his child. Temptation number two. So Satan takes Jesus to the top of the pinnacle of the, and at that time Herod had built the temple, so he had taken him to the pinnacle of the temple, which overlooks the courtyard. And he said, again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, and then which is very interesting. Guess what? Satan knows the word of God. He can quote it. So he quotes Psalm 91. He says to Jesus, if you throw yourself down, God's angels will come and make sure that you won't even trip over something. Um, Guys, if we only memorize the word of God without knowing the author, Satan will use his word, God's word against us. So this is to prove your identity, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, why don't you give us a show of power? Why don't you come and be spectacular and wow people with your show of power? Step outside of God's will and step into your own. Why don't you be a little bit presumptuous in your faith? It's to exchange your divine calling for a secular show of power. Alexander Fent is really funny at this stage, and I can't do it as well as him, but he's like, why don't you be the man of the hour? Why don't you show people what you can do? Because if you come and pray, and I pray for you, and you get healed, it's about me. It's not about God. And we all are tempted in this. Who wants to pray for people and then get saved? Who wants to pray for people and they get healed? Come on. We all want that. But there's a part of us that wants to be the one with the power. There's a part of us that wants to be that powerful person everybody flocks to. The one who knows everything about God. The one who has the answer, whatever it may be. And the temptation in this is to get people to follow you. And it deals with our relationship with human beings. So now we start to manipulate people. We use that kind of power 
to get them to flock to us. We use flattery. Satan used flattery. He says, I know you. I know, you know, you're the son of God, but let's just show some power. Why? Because it's going to satisfy my ego unmet needs inside of me. We all have that. We all have this hidden unmet ego needs inside that want to be the one, that person, the savior, the rescuer. Why do you think we have so many Marvel comics and stories about superheroes? Because we don't want Jesus as our superhero. We want to be the superhero. We want to have those powers. And it's to prove our worth to others. Jesus' answer, next slide. He said, do not provoke the Lord your God or don't put him to the test. Incredible. He's like, let's not presume that God loves me. Let's not put God to the test so that he has to back me up as a son and a daughter. I don't have to prove anything. And it's also saying, let God be God in every situation. Jesus was completely secure in the Father's love. And this is our test. The more deeply we are secure in the love for the Father, the less we have to prove our worth to people around us. The less, then we can treat people with dignity and respect. And this is where the discipline of solitude comes in. Jesus would not use people for his mission. And I think this has been an abuse in the church for too long, where men of God have abused people so that they are the ones who are wowed, and people come to them rather than showing them the way to Jesus. The third temptation. So Satan, now he doesn't just take him to the top of the pinnacle of the temple. He takes him and he shows them the kingdoms of the world. This must have been a spiritual experience. And he says, okay, I will give you. So there was some truth in here. Remember, he trusts truth. So there's some truth because he has been delegated truth through Adam. I mean, the kingdoms of the world through Adam. So he goes, I will give you the kingdoms of this earth if you bow down and worship me. Let's shortcut your journey to be the suffering servant. And let's go to it quickly so that you don't have to suffer. Again, he used flattery. I know you're destined to rule. So why don't we just quickly do do a quick exchange? It's the offer for instant, a jump to instant power. You see, we are all tempted because we all want to be in control of our lives, of our environments. I am reminded of this continually with my children. Parenting isn't about control, although some days I wish it was. We don't discipline our, child, our children to control them. We discipline them because we love them. But in our weakness, because we feel frustrated and powerless, we attempt to control them. And to be in power gives us this false sense of security, of safety. So, I, you know, there's people who've said, I've been hurt long enough by so many people. I'm going to be the one in control now. So nobody else can hurt me. Have you ever heard that from anyone? It's to prove my security. And it reveals our relationship to power. Do I yield to God and worship him? Do things his way, his timing? Or do I create other idols? So Alexander Fenter goes in and he actually says that idol worship, modern day word for idol worship now is addictions. So I am giving power to something else so that I can have power to cope with life. So whether it's drugs or sex or alcohol. The problem with that is the more power you give to something like that, the more it has over you and you become trapped in it. 
So Jesus' answer. Again, a quote from Deuteronomy. It was only to love the Lord your God. That was his quote. So he was showing us that the more we yield and trust in the love of the Father, that takes us in the right direction. This is where this saying, the long obedience in the same direction. I always thought it was from Eugene Peterson, but apparently there was a German guy who kind of did a study on power. I can't remember his name. And um, he said that there's an accumulative effect when giving over power to something. So in other words, if I yield my will to God, he didn't use God as an example, but this is the best example. If I yield my will to God, Every time I say yes to him and I yield my will to him, it becomes an acclimative power that sits within me. That's why James says, then I can stir up that power to be able to endure. So Jesus did this. So Jesus yeses to the will, to the will of the Father continually over his life, led him to the point that when he was in the garden, he had enough of that obedient that power that came through, perfect obedience to be able to say yes to the cross. We have to learn. It's his training. It's our training to say yes to the Father. So when we planted the church, it, made, it reminded me of, um, before we planted the church, there were a couple of times when God had said to us, we felt God doing certain things with us. So one is that we'd move to the States the other thing that we'd... So through various other people. And what we did was we initially would go, we'd look at, is this our calling? Is this what we're called to? And I had to learn to say yes, because Gary was feeling at the time, this is what we're going to do. So I yielded my will in those moments. And then God would go, no, that's not for you. But... When it came to planting the church, I also believe it was hormonal fog as well because Ella was only six months, but that's aside. When it came to planting the church, because both Gary and I never really saw ourselves as church planters. We thought maybe we would take over a church or transition a church, but because of the training that we had in saying those yeses to those little things that God said, actually, no, it's not for you. When it came to the time of saying, yes, you've got now four kids you have a baby of six months old. You have no idea where your money is, um, your salary is going to come from. Do you want to plant a church with me? And we both went, yes. That's what God does with us. He creates these moments of training where we learn to yield our will to his will. And then when it comes to the big moments, we have that ability. That spiritual muscle, as it were, has been trained enough so that we can do it. And he does it with us in everything. With Jesus, it was from when he was born to when he died. This is our vow of obedience. And everybody goes, whoa, Mufasa. The world doesn't like that word. You see, we look at God's commandments. So in, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that God's commandments are. If you read Deuteronomy, it says the Lord's commandments a lot. And we have, a, um, we have to redeem some of these words. So the, the ancient mindset was the word Torah, which is where we get the word law from. So when they say the, more, the law of Moses, it's talking about the Torah of Moses. And if you break that down, that word, it's seen actually of the basis of to bring delight and joy and off the basis of love. It's kind of completely opposite to what I think the word law is. To me, it means I have this mindless obligation and the set of rules that I have to follow. But the Torah, the Torah of God is not that at all. It's seen as a way of life. It's how to live the holy life. And it's the living word, which is God and Jesus, that guides them, leads us, and directs them. Very different from mindless obligations and a set of rules. So in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. So another thing I want to say, and this is always scary to say it because I'm part of the leadership, is 
In Hebrews 13, 10, uh, 7, 13 verse 17, it says we are to submit to our spiritual leaders. In other words, you submit your will to your spiritual leaders. And it doesn't say because you must mindlessly follow them because they have a bunch of set rules. Because it benefits you. It doesn't benefit us as leaders. And that's what God's calling us to in this world that we live in. He's like saying, can you submit, surrender, yield your will to my structure? The church is God's idea. Jesus, it says Jesus is the author. It's not man's idea. It doesn't make sense. For me, it doesn't make sense. And we are supposed to come in under because it brings us protection. It doesn't always. And if you have been hurt by church leaders, I pray that God will heal that wound. If you've been abused by church leaders, I just pray healing over that right now. Submission is supposed to be for our protection, our benefit. Obedience is for our benefit, to help us grow and mature so we can learn to overcome the enemy. It's supposed to be a place of delight and joy. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, We all experience times of testing, which, guess what, is normal for every believer, human being. Not believer, but human being. That's very interesting. But God will be faithful to you. And he will screen and filter the severity, the nature, and the timing of every test you face so that you can bear it. And each test is an opportunity, and this is what I love, to trust him more. For along with every trial that God has provided a way, for you, a way of escape for you that will bring you out victoriously. Okay, so my idea of being rescued out of a trial would be, God, come and take me out of the wilderness because I'm hungry right now and I don't want to deal with my stuff and I don't want to deal with my pain. And God's saying to us, actually, no, I need you to bear through it, to go through it, to walk through it promising that he will be with us every step of the way. Even though it's a place of solitude, it's not a place of loneliness because he is with us. This is where consolation comes in, where he comes, where Jesus, if you notice, Jesus had angels ministering to him. We are not alone in our journey in the wilderness. It's a place that's supposed to mature us and make us stronger so that we can help others and we can show the world because it reveals Jesus in us. That being said, don't ever underestimate Satan. He's not stupid. He may be evil, but he's not stupid. He's been doing this for a long time. If you notice the wording, it says that Satan came to Jesus. So even though he had the swirls of wild animals, the swirls of de the demonic oppression around him, Satan only came to him after 40 days when he was at his weakest point. He's not going to come to you when you're feeling strong in your faith. He's going to come to you when you're feeling weak. You see, the enemy knows you. He probably maybe knows you more than you know yourself. He's been studying you. It says in some of the translations that after the temptations, Satan went off. And he stood afar from Jesus, watching Jesus, waiting for the next opportune time. He's going to wait for an opportune time for you guys. Not to fear it, but for you guys to expect it and learn from it. You see, spiritual warfare is normal. That is our normal life. We can't carry on with the, the delusion that we are living in a beautiful place 
where no spiritual warfare and nobody's going to come and accuse us. Nobody's going to come and oppress us. Satan hates the fact that you reflect, you are the image bearer of God. So therefore he hates you. We need to learn to count it all joy as you encounter testings, as James says, and temptations, because it will produce endurance, which only grows stronger until there's nothing missing and nothing lacking in who you are. It's called maturity. And it's interesting, so I looked up what it means to prove something, because that kept coming at me, and I I did this this morning. So to prove something is to test its validity or its worth or the genuineness of something. It's to test the worth or quality of something. It's to establish the existence, the truth or validity of something. And it's to demonstrate a particular worth or quality, right? Satan wants us This is where he hooks us in, and this is where we have to get a little bit more wise. So what Satan wants to do, if you look at all the temptations, is whatever, whether it's identity, power, or security, whatever the temptation is, he wants to get us to prove to him something. That would be a great response from him. You know what? I'm going to show you who I am. Let me... Pray for that person and they'll get healed. You see, when we are baited into an argument with Satan about our worth, he's already won. And the reason why I say that is all the proof, all the validity, all the, the, the genuineness and the worth has already been proven and Jesus has done that for us. We don't have to prove a thing to the enemy. Our only response is to choose to believe what he has done. It's through belief, and when we believe something, then we obey. So if we see each test as an opportunity to trust God more, so if you are battling with your identity your worth as a son and a daughter, and the enemy comes at you and he accuses you, and that's all he's doing is he's throwing, who do you think you are? You can't even imagine. I mean, you've just done something stupid like that. How can you believe that you're the son of God? How can you believe that Jesus loves you? How can you believe that the Father loves you? And all you have to go is, look what Jesus did on the cross for me. His blood has made me a daughter of the king. Guess what? I get to walk into heaven into the throne room and sit next to my dad, you can't. We don't have to prove anything by doing anything. We just have to prove, we just have to hold up the proof. And that would be Jesus on the cross. It's always a choice of choosing to believe and choosing to trust. Sounds so easy when it rolls off your lips. So Hebrews 4 says this, so we must cling in faith to all that we know to be true. So at whatever point in your life is, you've got some truth that God has revealed to you. So your job right now, wherever you are, is to cling on to that truth. If he reveals a new truth to you, then you take that truth and you secure it in your mind. You go over it. You, you, you allow it to become deep in your heart. You choose every day, And you renew your mind and your thought patterns until that becomes something that you just go, when Satan comes and he goes, oh, who do you think you are? And you go, I am. I am in Christ. I don't have to fight that anymore. You see, when we look at Jesus and we're with Jesus, we look and we see who the Father is. The Hebrews thing says that he is the exact impression, the mirror image of the Father. So if you are worried because your earthly father was not a good father, and you're worried that you have lies that you believe, you don't have to go necessarily to the Father. You can get to know Jesus. 
because in getting to know who he is, his character is the same as the Father. And as you start to trust Jesus more, you can start to trust the Father more. So if we cling in faith to all we know is to be true, for we have a magnificent King Priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who rose in the heavenly realm for us, who, who now sympathizes with our frailty. He's not afraid of our human frailty. He's not even afraid of our weakness. Our problem is that we don't like to be weak. He understands what it's like to be a man or human being. Because he was tempted in every way. And he conquered sin. So now we come freely and boldly to where love sits enthroned. To receive mercy's kiss. And to discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. All we got to do is ask. And you see, Jesus, like I said earlier, is the one who has proven perfect. So now he's our source of who we choose to listen and obey. During Christ's days on earth, this is further along in Hebrews 5, he pleaded with God, praying with passion and tearful agony that God would spare him from death. And because of his perfect devotion... He's not expecting us to be perfect. He's already done that. His prayer was answered and he was delivered. And even though he was a wonderful son, he learned to listen and obey through all his sufferings. I think we all have to get rid of our head, in our heads that sufferings is a bad thing. I don't know about you, but my kids learn much quicker through pain. And I'm not just talking about a spanking or a hiding. I'm talking about when they make a mistake. A mistake is, is pain. And they learn through that and they grow from that. See, God isn't expecting us to be these perfect sons and daughters who come into the house and are perfect. He's going, come my boy. Oh, look, you've fallen over. You've cut your knee. Now what are you going to learn? You're going to learn to step a little bit more, learn to walk. When you fall, he will be there. We have to renew our minds with this fact that pain is not necessarily our foe. The enemy is our foe. He's our adversary. Pain is our friend because pain teaches us to grow. Pain teaches us how to respond to the Father. Temptations are there to reveal what area do we need to work on now? Because if he's revealed a truth, it means that a, a revelation of who you are and your identity, it means that now we're going to work on it. Now we're together. You and I, Jesus, Jesus is going to help us deepen that truth until we actually choose to believe it. Because often we hear a truth and we go, oh, that's amazing. But actually, I'm not really sure deep down I understand. I really believe that. So your job and my job is to take the truth that God has given us. And then we work on it. And this whole thing of Dr. Caroline Leaf is that that thing becomes our mindsets and we overcome. Until there's nothing left in us, there's nothing amiss that Satan has no place to work. Like he says of Jesus, Jesus said that Satan had nothing on him. There was nothing in Jesus, in his mindset, in how he thought that Satan had, he could use to hook him in and get him to believe a lie and come into alignment with a lie. That's our jobs, our responsibility. One is to acknowledge that in our heads we have belief systems that are not biblical, that aren't based on who God says we are. And that's okay. It's okay that we're not perfect. Our jobs is to go, the truth that God has revealed to me now in this season in my life, I'm going to work with it until I believe it, until because it's automatic thinking. That's how we learn to overcome. We don't have to prove a damn thing. Jesus has done that all. The Hebrew picture, and I've, I've shared this before, of the word obey, is to hear and to listen. 
Because we're in a battle for right and wrong. We're in a battle for good and evil. Whose side are you on? Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Because there's only two options. Are you going to assume your personal responsibility? And as you mature, God will give you more and more personal responsibility to, to take hold of. Evil was defeated by the obedience of Jesus. And obedience is a byproduct of God's love. Adam disobeyed because he gave his heart away to another. Jesus obeyed because he gave his heart to the Father. The question is, how are we going to respond? And what are we going to choose? So there's a slide right at the end about questions. Yeah, it's nice because it's been nice to hear what Jesus has done and everything. But actually, if we don't, if we don't apply truth in our lives, it's, it has, it's useless. It's like taking a sword and not picking it up and not learning how to use it. So the challenge to us is will we take these questions and honestly look at our hearts and minds? Do you even know what spiritual warfare looks like in your life? Can you even understand that some of the stuff that's been happening to you is because you're a believer and you're in a spiritual war? It's no one's fault, it just is. How does Satan tempt you? What is that one thing that repeatedly comes back at you that he comes and brings? Ask Holy Spirit to reveal that. The thing in your head. Now this is in the mind. Yes, life happens and circumstances happens, but I'm talking about what happens in your head space. What's your inner narrative? Because that gives you an idea of what God wants to deal with. What, out of the three temptations, what is the one that you struggle with the most? The material needs, wants, and desires? Are you wanting to prove your identity? Is it ego needs? And using people to prove your worth? Or is it the use of power and control to put, so that you feel secure and in control? Look at those things. Ask yourselves those questions. Be Ask Holy Spirit so that you are brave enough to face that so that you know the truth and overcome it. And that's when the truth sets you free from these things. How can you escape and overcome and have consolation in this period of... What, what does that mean to you? For me, I have to journal. And I have to unpack what the words are saying to me. Gary listens to this stuff all the time. What are you feeding yourself? What, what nourishment are you giving yourself? Is it junk food, spiritually speaking? Are you trying to avoid things through fantasy, hiding in Facebook? Oh, that Facebook is such a pain. It's such a waste of time, and yet I keep doing it. Why? Because I don't want to face what God is doing in me. What is that thing that you go to, that fantasy world that you're creating? Ask yourselves those questions. Work on it. And learn to overcome so that we come to maturity. And Satan can say of people in Lifehouse, I actually am battling to find stuff in them. There's nothing amiss. Their minds, oh, it's like looking into the mind of Christ. Paulie, do you want to come up? So a very challenging preach. And I'm not sorry for it. And I won't apologize for it. Because I want you guys to grow. I want you guys to mature. I want you guys to live victoriously. Flip, I want to live victoriously. And today, I don't know if you noticed the theme of the, even from Gabriella's testimony, to freedom sessions, to that's what we do in Freedom Sessions. We help you 
figure out the lies in your heads so you know the truth so you can overcome. You see, Neil Anderson says an amazing thing is that we don't need a power encounter with the enemy. You can't outpower him. We can out-truth him, though. We need truth encounters. And in order to have a truth encounter, you need to know what the truth is. So be diligent with the CBR journaling. Read the word. Ask God to show him the story of the Father who loves you. Ask God to show you the lies that you believe when you read the stories. And if you hit a verse that you're going, oh, I don't like this, or I'm struggling with this, you know you've hit something that God wants to deal with you about truth. And ask him to reveal it. And then once he's revealed it, expect warfare. Expect Your new normal going from today is to expect spiritual warfare. Your new normal is to expect accusation from the enemy, but God is faithful. Don't be surprised that he comes. Count it all joy because why? It will bring you two to maturity. You don't have to prove a thing. Jesus has done that for you.